listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Today, I am so excited to bring you another episode. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host. The White Sox clinched a playoff berth for the first time since 2008. And I couldn't think of anyone better to discuss this than with James Fox, senior editor here at Future Sox. Happy birthday, sir. What a day it is for you. Yeah, thanks. It's, you know, good that we finally got around to doing this and it ended up, you know, working out on a pretty good day. Yeah, so selfishly, today is all about James Fox and his birthday and the White Sox gave him the gift of the postseason for the first time in 12 years. Steve Peradzinski, today's guest. Steve, it is so good to have you back. Southside Clown Show over on Twitter at NWI underscore Steve. You can follow him there. It's so good to have you back. Talk to you in the past. What was that in the, in the offseason? Getting ready for 2020? Did you expect any of this? Did you expect the amount of success that this White Sox team has had to this point of the season? Well, hey, Mike and James, first, I just want to say thanks for having me back on. It's not uh, very often I get asked to come on to a well-respected White Sox talk podcast here. You know, as far as expectations coming into the season, I really looked at this team kind of like the two, you know, maybe like a 2014 Royals, uh, 2015 Astros, Cubs, or 2018 type Brave season where there was so much young potential upside on this roster here that I didn't think it was impossible for this team to get to the playoffs here. I thought that they didn't quite have enough depth to make me feel certain that they were going to be a playoff team, but to me, it was not out of the realm of possibility to see this happen. You know, we've seen a lot of guys progress more than even I anticipated happening here. And it's just, it's so awesome and so exciting to finally have meaningful baseball again. It really is awesome. I mean, honestly, that's, that's, that's it. It's awesome. And it's something that we can celebrate. You, you mentioned looking into this season, what could we expect? Well, not a whole lot because everything changed on a dime. And when Major League Baseball announced its 60-game schedule and then ultimately the ex- expanded playoff setting, you felt like the White Sox were going to be a part of this thing. But they're the best team in the American League. Currently, on September 17th, going into the 18th, they had the best record in the American League and not far off uh, from the best record in baseball, which is really exciting to talk about. So I want to get your thoughts on, on a few things. We're going to dive into the state of the club currently, uh, how some of the players involved now impacts 2021's White Sox. We don't want to look too far ahead to the postseason because there's still plenty of baseball left and we can react on the fly, but it's always fun just to look into our crystal ball going into next year because, as we all know, the outcome of every game moving forward really influences and the production of each individual player, Rick Hahn's path, right, in how he approaches this offseason. So off the top of the head, there's a few positions that you'd like to see him attack, but Again, still a lot of time left, so we'll we'll go into Reynaldo Lopez. We'll talk Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, Cody Hoyer, a lot of these young players who are impacting the Chicago White Sox in 2020. But before we get into all this conversation, I want to take you both back to 2008, the last time the White Sox made the postseason. Lost in four games against the Tampa Bay Rays, but you know that point is moot because we were still celebrating playoff baseball. James, where were you back in 2008? And how do you remember 
that experience as a White Sox fan? So 2008, I was 23 years old. I was I was not teaching yet. I, I you know I still I was uh, finishing up college. I was working at Shoe Carnival um, in the in the great uh, Southwest suburbs in Joliet, and uh, I, I remember working you know the night of the the blackout game when they clinched because we had it on like back in the stock room. I couldn't, for whatever reason, I like couldn't get out of it or chose not to or, or whatever. And then, uh, you know, I remember, you know, being excited after they had won and going out to bars or wherever after that. So, you know, it was, uh, it, it was exciting, but that was a frustrating team and a frustrating year. And I'm sure Steve will talk a little bit about that too, but I mean, I didn't think we'd be waiting 12 years for another one guys. So this is, uh, you know, even with a 60-game season, you know, if they're going to hand out a trophy at the end of the thing, they might as well win it. So this is, you know, the first step to that. Well, you brought me back to the blackout game, James, and thinking about Ken Griffey Jr. and Jim Tomey and John Danks. I mean, what a way to get into the postseason, first of all. And they beat the Twins, the same team that they beat, Steve, today in order to get in. Steve, where were you back in 2008, and how are you feeling today? In 2008... I was in section 151, row 12. And so I got to witness the blackout game in person, got to witness John Danks for the game of his life. And I got to watch in just absolute joy as Joe Maurer and Justin Morneau had to watch the White Sox celebrate a Central Division title. And uh, I remember the postgame celebration, Nick Swisher going down the third base line, actually sprayed some champagne in my right eye after that whole thing happened, you know, former White Sox legend, Nick Swisher, that is. Um, that was honestly of all the baseball games that I've been to in my life. And, you know, James knows this. I go to a lot of games and I've talked about this on Twitter that I've been fortunate enough in my life that I've actually been to four no hitters in a perfect game, but the blackout was the Single greatest baseball game I've ever been to in my life. Just the the energy in the ballpark that night was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And to I, I honestly, like James said, I didn't think it was going to take 12 years for us to have that feeling again of meaningful baseball coming back to 35th and Shields. I'll tell you what, we talked about how you felt, especially the way James felt. He, he mentioned how frustrating the 2008 White Sox were. Uh, the 2020 White Sox, Steve, I don't like a lot changed at the beginning of the season, right? You entered the off season in a full 162 game slate. You expected, right? The Sox to be among the contenders. We weren't really sure what the overall product was going to be, but then the season shrunk to 60 games because of circumstances and they expanded the playoffs. And it was like, Hey, we just went out and signed Dallas Keuchel, Yasmani Grandal, Edwin Encarnacion. You're making moves to try and improve the depth of the pitching staff. And you have a pretty solid farm system behind you that you could pull some talent in a place of depth. So give me your, I guess, feeling in the offseason coming into 2020, what you expected from this team and, and where you stand now, obviously, after the Sox are now in the postseason. Yeah, you know, coming into the full regular 162 game schedule there. I was thinking that this was going to be anywhere from like an 83 to 86 win team that could be right on the cusp of that second wild card. Then when obviously things shifted due to the pandemic and we were looking at the 60 game sprint, I really looked at this as, okay, that is going to put this team really within the margin for Aaron. And I actually predicted them to finish second um, prior to the season. And I had them being a, a wild card team losing in the first round. Um, with the expanded playoff format. I think now with what we've seen out of this team, 
I mean, there's really no reason why this team can't make a deep run in October here. Offensively, it's been obviously well-documented. This is one of the top offenses in the entire American League. And I think people are really sleeping on the pitching staff here because, granted, the depth is not as strong as you would see from a team like Tampa Bay or from the Dodgers, for example. But if you look statistically, this team is actually one of the better pitching staffs across the entire major leagues. You know, they, they get a lot of ground balls and the relief core, even in the absence of Aaron Bummer, um, has held up here to this point where there's still a top 10 relief core across the entire game. And the starting pitching, you know, Dylan Cease and, and Ronaldo Lopez, there's been a lot talked about and a lot written about their performances and how they are outperforming their projections. But the fact of the matter is this team is not giving up a lot of runs. And I, I just come, I come into this thing, I think about the 2002 Angels, a team that nobody expected to win the World Series and a team that is not as potent offensively as the White Sox. They don't have as strong a pitching as the White Sox. I mean, that team, their best starting pitcher was Jared Washburn, and they won the World Series. So crazier things have happened. I'm not saying that I think the White Sox are going to go all the way and, and bring the commissioner's trophy back home to 35th and Shields, but they're in the dance, and they've got as good a chance as anybody to do it. Yeah, Steve, for sure. And, and, you know, like there's there's variance every year. And this year, obviously, in a three-game series, like they could beat anybody. They could probably lose to anybody too. So, you know, they definitely have a shot. But how, how does it feel, you know, you wrote about it recently, just the fact that it was today, this week against this team, like them finally exercising some of their demons against this Minnesota Twins club. Because, like, you, you and I have talked about how, you know, they needed to bum slay a little bit. And and they did that, but coming into this series, they were two and four against the Twins this year, and you know now they're now they're five hundred against them, which is what they need to do. So I guess how big was this series, and how cool was it that this is how they clinched? This was unbelievable, to to be completely honest with you. You know, one of the things that I wrote about and I talked about in the piece is that since the year two thousand, the Sox have been I think it was like 60 some games below 500 against the Twins overall and they've only had four seasons where they won the season series overall now granted look this year five and five so you got the season series to 500 but they have just been so outplayed for much of my adult life by the Minnesota Twins and it, it really has kind of gotten to a point where you just expect something bad to happen when you see that stupid interlocking TC logo uh, on, on the opposing side of the field for the White Sox. And to be in a position here where they're in control of their own destiny in a meaningful September series with the division on the line and to take three out of four from this team that has just haunted your dreams for two decades, I can't think of anything more fulfilling for this team as they start to try to write their own legacy and, and try to turn around a lot of the stigma surrounding this franchise than by exercising probably the greatest demon that they've had for my adult life. You know, that's such an interesting point that you bring up, the stigma of, this, of the franchise. Because, you know, you think about the original baseball teams back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, both Chicago teams were a part of that conversation. And you look at the White Sox history, not a lot of success, you know, three world series championships in over 120 years, 
They've been to the postseason nine times and they'll make it 10. But it's to a point now where if we're talking about the now, you can throw all that out the window because of the approach that this organization committed to, even dating back to, I guess you can even start when they when they allowed Rick Hahn to take reins as the general manager and start making those decisions. And then fast forward to 2016 when they you know, uh, committed to the rebuild. And now you see it come to fruition from the ground up. You talk about just the development of a franchise. You're seeing all of these players within the White Sox and Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, even Adam Engel, a guy who's played a pretty key role this season, homegrown prospects, homegrown signings, the, the young arms that are coming up to contribute immediately. What does that have to say, Steve, about the way this franchise has progressed uh, over the course of even the last decade? You know, I think it really says a lot. And a lot has obviously been said and written about where the Sox were at with regards to the to this rebuild process that began in 2016. A lot of people have obviously been very critical of Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, Nick Hostetler, and the approach that they've taken because it wasn't an immediate turnaround. A lot of people thought that because they were trading Chris Sale, because they were trading Jose Quintana and trading Adam Eaton, that they should instantly turn this thing around and become a playoff team. And we know that most of the time baseball doesn't work like that, no matter how idealistic you may want to be. And so there have been bumps in the road throughout this process. And we've seen a lot of people really take issue with that. But I think by and large, if, as you look at how this team is positioned here now, going into the playoffs in 2020, and then next season and beyond, I can't think of another time in my life where this team has been better positioned to have a long, sustained run of success than they are right now. Obviously, there's going to need to be some continued tweaking going along with this. There's going to need to be some additional resources provided from the ownership level, and that's going to be of paramount importance to try to finish this job here. But they really have this core group in place that is really unrivaled with any core White Sox group that I've seen in my life. Yeah, right there. I think you nailed it. It's the core. And a lot of the core right now is contributing. You talk about the way that they went out and acquired Aloy Jimenez, the way that he's developing now as a White Sox. Same with the way that Tim Anderson, you see, has established himself as among the best, maybe if not the best hitter in the American League and in baseball. Because, Steve, you have two MVP candidates, legitimate MVP candidates on this squad and I'd love to dive into that conversation right now and really, I guess we could dissect both players in terms of value, right? How do you evaluate an MVP candidate? And if you had a vote, what do you take into account when you're looking at Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu? What are you leaning? Which way are you leaning? And how do you compare it to the other MVP candidates around the league and Luke Voigt and, and Mike Trout, for example? You know, I, I seemingly flip-flop on almost a daily basis as far as who I would vote for. Whether, I do too. Whether it's <laughs> TA or, or Abreu. Um, the, I mean, these guys, it, it seems like they're just playing off of each other's energy and, and what the other person is doing on a daily, daily basis. It's almost like they know and realize that, look, we're one and two in this race right now for this MVP. So I got to outdo what you did yesterday. And, you know, for me... I've always tended to lean towards the up the middle player. And so my thought has kind of been that TA has been the spark plug for this team because we saw when he was on the injured list for 10 days, this was a dead team. 
I mean, they had no energy. They had no spark. And, you know, they're going just through this malaise. And, and this is during that time frame when they fell below 500. They had that dreadful doubleheader sweep at the hand of the St. Louis COVIDs, I mean, Cardinals. And um, then Timmy came back a couple of days later in Detroit, and it was like a light bulb just switched off for, for this team. And they've been murdering the baseball ever since then. And I've been critical of Timmy's defense, and he has really shored that up this season. You know, the initial um, baseball savant outs above average metrics came out, and Timmy was towards the bottom for overall shortstops. But one of the things that that might be misleading in is just due to the fact that he's not making necessarily the spectacular plays that other shortstops are making, but he's doing what we as Sox fans have been asking of him for the last several of years. He's making the routine plays on a consistent basis. And that was something that we weren't seeing from him coming into this season. There were so many times where you would just have for seven to 10 days at, at a time, these defensive lapses where the errors would just come in bunches. And we're not seeing that with Timmy. He's setting the tone at the top of the order. Um, I mean, what was it earlier this, you know, during this last stretch of games, he had what five consecutive games leading off the first inning with a, with a base hit. And we keep seeing all the graphics on the screen when Tim Anderson gets a hit, how frequently he scores a run. And then how frequently when he scores a run, is that leading to White Sox wins? So from my perspective, he's the guy that I tend to lead towards in this MVP discussion. And I don't want that to sound as a slight to Jose Abreu because he has been spectacular. I mean, this has been 2014 level Jose Abreu. He has been that middle of the order thumper that this team has desperately needed. And he has provided that offense and he has been a driving force in the middle of this order here, driving in key runs. And I know a lot of us that look at advanced metrics within the analytical community, um, we tend to be critical of RBIs and saying that they're more so a function of having quality teammates. And to an extent, there there is some, certainly some truth to that. But Abreu just has this knack for, in these key situations when he needs to drive in a run, of finding a way to get the job done. And that can't be discounted. But I, I think in some regards, he might get dinged a little bit for playing first base. And you know we haven't seen a first baseman win the MVP since Miguel Cabrera won a triple crown back in uh, 2012 in 2013. So it's been a little while. And I think that a lot of voters are starting to look at the importance of defensive positioning on the diamond. And that's where I think Timmy's probably going to get the edge personally. Yeah. So I guess like I would agree that I would probably vote for Anderson, but I, I kind of feel like the way this is gone, if a White Sox wins it, it, I think it's actually might be Jose Abreu just because I think, you know, what the East Coast writers decide to do will ultimately be what happens. You know, I think Luke Voigt will get votes, but I, I don't think he's going to have, you know, the same cachet that, you know, even if the White Sox guys trade votes, you have two guys on the Angels still. I just don't think Voigt has done enough. I've heard some people suggest that, you know, since Anderson missed 10 games, like that would hurt him. I, I kind of feel the opposite of that. Like, I feel like, he he's one of the leaders in the American League in in B war and F war, and he's played ten less games than everybody. Like Tim Anderson's been fantastic, and like you said, that that takes nothing away from what Jose has done. I hope I just you know I hope one of them gets it. But I guess my question then for for both of you is which which season is more surprising? Because I think they're both surprising. I mean, if you go back and listen to me and Mike talk from four or five weeks ago, 
you know, I, I was I was way down on Jose Abreu, and I thought last year was going to be the best year that Tim Anderson might have in his career. So I've been wrong on both counts, and I'm not really sure which guy I'm the most surprised by. Yeah, I think from that standpoint, um, I'm probably more surprised by Timmy, in, in all honesty, just because I think I had some belief that there was going to be a, a, at least a slight pullback in terms of his offensive production, um, just because he had such a high BABIP a year ago. And again, I didn't necessarily envision the defense being cleaned up to the level that it has. You know, I definitely did think that Abreu with having a functional supporting cast for the first time in his career would put together a strong offensive campaign. So I, I think if I had to pick one, I'm more surprised by Timmy. So, you know, going into this thing now, I think, you know, we all we all kind of thought that the White Sox would make the playoffs after seeing this format. But now I feel like, you know, three games up on the Twins, four games up in the loss column and the tiebreaker, like they might as well win the damn division. What uh, what are you looking forward to seeing, I guess, like over the next 10 games? Because they're in like how much does do the next 10 matter? And what do you what do you need to see? What are you looking forward to? Well, the first thing I'm looking forward to seeing, and James, I feel that you are going to share this sentiment. I'm very much looking forward to the possibility and the probability of the White Sox celebrating a division title on the Cleveland Indians home field. That will just warm my heart to no end. Um, as far as you know, actual individual performances, you know, there's been a lot of rumblings about Aaron Bummer coming back. And if they are able to get him back, if he is close to what we know he can be. That is a lethal weapon that can be deployed at the back end of that bullpen in a number of different roles and different scenarios. And it's going to allow them to push back Evan Marshall, Cody Hewer, and, and some of the other guys that we have seen step up in his absence there, as well as Jonathan Stever. I mean, this is a guy I've been very intrigued by since the Sox drafted him out of Indiana University a couple of years back. Um, so, you know, he's going to be on the mound tomorrow here against the uh, Cincinnati Reds. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing what he's able to do in his second outing. We saw kind of a tale of two different starts with him in his debut on Sunday against the Tigers. Those first inning jitters really kind of got to him. Then after that, he calmed down and displayed a lot of the traits that allowed his prospect status to rise, being a guy that aggressively pounds the strike zone, has a fastball that he locates very well and utilizes up in the strike zone to get strikeouts and a power breaking ball. So I'd say those are probably the the couple things that I'm looking forward to seeing the most, as well as um, just one last thing on the offensive side, Luis Robert um, getting out of this funk that he's been in here since the uh, month of September started. You mentioned Jonathan Stever there. That's somebody that I'd like to get into as well a little bit. Uh, but let's let's save that because I want to give a shout out to Jose Abreu real quick. Uh, you know, going back to when the White Sox acquired him in 2014, the White Sox invested internationally on the guy, gave him six years. You know, the highest paid contract that the White Sox were were offering a free agent. And you talk about that rookie season, just looking at the numbers there. You know, he was a top five MVP candidate and had an OPS plus to finish the year at 173. Right now, across 60, uh, what is it, uh, across 49 games, I should say, a 996 OPS, and his OPS plus is at 167. So you talk about James's question, going back to it, who are you more surprised by? Uh, I'm not necessarily surprised by the production from Jose Abreu because we're seeing that sort of consistency 
it's apparent across his entire White Sox career as a run producer. And when you talk about Tim Anderson's value, I mean, he's continued to take the next step. And you you think about how difficult it would be for Anderson to take that next step after the season he had last year. And Steve, you talked about it. The improvements defensively changes everything. And then you could talk about as well, he's playing shortstop, one of the hardest, if not the hardest position on the field. So defensively. So I think I, every time I lean Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson does something to say, to bring me back and say, oh no, I'm here too. And, uh, you know, I'm the more worthy candidate in, in my humble opinion. And, uh, I agree with him hypothetically, if he were to say that, of course. So that's kind of where I stand on that whole deal. But also what you were talking about too, is that I found, uh, interesting, Steve is the way the White Sox are incorporating their rotation, right, and how they're maneuvering around a lot of the inconsistencies of 2020, how they were able to implement the young arms as well on the back end that has helped the starting rotation. Um, and you mentioned Jonathan Stever there, but we can include Jimmy Lambert at the beginning of the season who played a huge role uh, in the pitching staff before he got hurt. Dane Dunning filling in consistency, consistently, I should say, as a every fifth day type of guy who's been out there and has had success, somebody that you can plan the future around. And this is something that I'd like to dive into as well, Steve, is what the White Sox are going to do moving forward based on where they stand uh, in their in their 40-man and even extending it to the 60-man in the, in the immediacy because there are holes on this team. We talked about it a little bit already, and you have to prepare for free agency and attack some of these avenues. But in the starting pitching, department. How do you feel right now about where the Sox stand with guys like Dylan Cease and Reynaldo Lopez and and how they fit into the future plans? Because we saw like today in Reynaldo Lopez's start defeating the Twins to get into the postseason. He, he pitched pretty well. And this is the second start in a row now where he's looked okay, right? But at the same time, how long are we going to do this dance? So my question to you is, how does Reynaldo Lopez, and I guess as an extension, the rest of the rotation, how is that playing to Rick Hahn's decision-making going into this offseason as he preps to uh, prepare a team for 2021? Yeah, you know, that's a tremendous question there, Mike. Um, you know, I've been very down on Reynaldo Lopez for a while now, largely just because of his inability to miss bats with any level of consistency. You see the frequent mental lapses that Ricky talks about on a pretty regular basis with him. And just for a guy that has as eye-popping natural stuff as Ronaldo Lopez has, he's been so underwhelming throughout the majority of his time on the South side here. So, you know, when he got sent down to the alternate site down in Schaumburg a couple of weeks back, I was of the mindset, like a lot of people were, that the end of the Ronaldo Lopez starting experiment had finally arrived and he was going to have to begin transitioning his role to a reliever in some capacity. I don't know if these two outings that he's had have done anything to really change the long-term prognosis on that. Um, you know, he has made some, I think some noticeable changes to his approach and the way he's attacking hitters, utilizing his breaking ball and change up more than his fastball, something that we had not seen from him uh, with any level of consistency during the time he's been in the Sox rotation. But I, I think really circling back to, to your main overarching point, I just don't know that I can count on Ronaldo Lopez 
and even for that matter, Dylan Cease, um, who I know has a lot less major league time under his belt than Ronaldo Lopez does at this point. But, you know, there are some some pretty glaring weaknesses that I see with Cease. Again, his inability to miss bats is something that is very concerning for me with a guy that has a top five average fastball velocity across the entire major leagues. And we're just not seeing that type of dominance that you would expect from a guy of his pedigree and of his natural ability. So with those two guys, you know, the likes of a Jonathan Stever and a Jimmy Lambert, I'm almost wondering and and feeling as though Rick Hahn in some capacity will put together some type of a package to get a cost controllable right fielder for the foreseeable future or a starting pitcher that he can plug into the rotation and count on for the next two to three years. Yeah, I, I, I like that approach. That's an interesting idea because, you know, obviously one of the glaring needs is right field. And I think that has to be, you know, a, a primary focus. But also at the same time, when you look at it on paper, the starting rotation appears to be, okay, we're confident in what we have in Michael Kopech returning, uh, you know, Dylan Cease has his issues, but this is now going would be going on his third uh, major league season, and with an upper nineties fastball, and you know the stuff. We we regurgitate the same stuff when we talk about Dylan Cease uh, and his pitchability, but then at the same time, the success hasn't really been there, and you know, it's it's it raises the question of how the White Sox want to approach the rotation moving forward. You committed to Dallas Keuchel. Turned out to be a really good signing, not only just on the field production-wise, but behind the scenes. You, you guys mentioned Tim Anderson's uh, absence from the lineup and how the Sox were just flat. Keiko went out and said, hey, man, we got to get going. You know, I didn't come here to, to slug around a, a, this kind of stretch. We're a playoff team. Let's do this. So, you know, the value's paying dividends already. So, in, in Giolito, Keiko, Cease, we're going to include Kopech, on his way back. Reynaldo Lopez, a part of the conversation. Dane Dunning, I don't know if I've mentioned Dane Dunning already, but there are names, like I said, on paper. But does that make Rick Hahn apprehensive in making a deal to go get a starting pitcher to invest in free agency per se, or or even go out and acquire a starting arm? What would you prefer Rick Hahn do? Would you like to see him go get a top of the rotation type arm this offseason? I would absolutely love to see that. You know, I think that this team has proven now here in 2020 that they have arrived. The window has opened. The goal now is to be winning the division on a year-in, year-out basis and to be competing to win the World Series. And one of the best ways you can go about doing that is having that stud at the top of your rotation that you know you can count on every five days and that you know when you get into a playoff series in a best-of-five format that you can count on to give you a quality outing against a tough opponent and put you in a position to win a playoff game when you don't have very much margin for error. Um, so I think acquiring a, a top level, you know, starting pitcher, not necessarily, I don't even know that it has to be a number one or a number two type guy, because I'm not sure those guys are really going to be available this winter. I know there's a lot of talk about Trevor Bauer, um, And I would be very much in favor of adding Trevor Bauer because all that would cost would be Jerry Reinsdorf's money. And I'm more than comfortable spending his money. Um, I don't know if he is, but um, that's how I would personally approach it. I think if you put one more level of certainty at the top part of this rotation, 
this team is going to be really positioned as the favorites in the American League Central and possibly in the American League total. Yeah, I agree. Veteran pitching addition would be would be good, whether it's via trade or free agency. Obviously, you know, I think you and I have the same doubts that it's going to be Bauer. But look, if you can get certainty up there with Giolito and Keuchel, and then you let Kopech, Dunning, Cease battle it out for two spots, I feel a heck of a lot more comfortable like with that than you know, just depending on arms next year, which kind of brings me back to, you know, the guy that's going to start for the White Sox tomorrow night in Jonathan Stever. You mentioned him earlier. I was a little bit surprised that they made the 40 man edition as early as they did and had him start, Um, you know, not against it by any means, but I was just, you know, a little bit surprised because I thought that he'd, you know, he's probably going to occupy a spot on the 40 man while pitching in Birmingham or somewhere next year. I think he gets tomorrow start and then maybe he gets another one you know, what do you, what are you looking to see from Stever tomorrow night? And then, you know, we can get into some of the other like roster gymnastics that I feel like some people haven't really taken a close look at this roster. If you're going to add Rodon and Keuchel and, and uh bummer to it over the next three days, there might be some uncomfortable decisions I think being made headed into the playoffs. Yeah. So as it relates to Jonathan Stever, I'm just looking for him to go out there, be aggressive Pound the strike zone early and often against the Cincinnati Reds. Look, the, the Reds are a team that they are starting to get a little bit hot. They know that they have very limited time if they are going to try to sneak into the back door as one of these two wild cards in the National League. But that's not an overpowering offense by any stretch of the imagination there. So I want to see Steve just go out and do what he showed with – a high level of consistency during his minor league career to this point. Just attack the strike zone early, get ahead of hitters, utilize that fastball on both sides of the plate, and then put guys away with that high fastball power curve combination. Which one of the, like we've, you know, it's, it is the prospect podcast, obviously. And we, you know, we've talked about all these debuts this year and all the drafted players that have been up, which one of the prospect debuts maybe, caught you by surprise or you who you've been I guess like the most surprised about that's come up and done well if I had to pick one um I think I would probably have to say Dane Dunning and only from from the standpoint look you know this was a guy that was a top 100 prospect at at one point here uh before he had the Tommy John surgery but you know this is a guy that doesn't have overpowering stuff you know, so much of what we see from pitching today is velocity driven. And he's not that guy. You know, Dane Dunning is, you know, if he were a lefty, he would be a crafty, you know, southpaw. But he's a guy that just goes out there, gets ahead of hitters, uses both sides of the plate, utilizes three a three-pitch mix to keep hitters off balance. He's kind of an old school pitcher in a number of different regards. He tries to keep the ball down on the ground and induce soft contact with ground balls. And that's really kind of antithetical to what we're seeing in Major League Baseball here in 2020. Um, coming off of the layoff that he had with the Tommy John surgery, and then obviously being kind of slow played through the original spring training and then everything getting shut down, I just didn't know what we were going to get from him after that long of a layoff. And I have been just overwhelmingly pleased with how he has come in here and just the level of poise that he has shown. Um, he looks completely unfazed at the major league level. He looks like a guy that has been here for a decade 
and has seen everything. And he's just a cool customer out there on the mound. Nothing phases him. His reaction is the same if he's getting squeezed by an umpire or if he's, you know, working ahead of hitters with consistency. And I think that's a level of stability that he's provided since he came into this rotation that this team desperately needed. You know, I think the answer of Dane Dunning to that question is is probably the best that you could come up with in that in that scenario because we just really haven't seen him pitch a lot uh, with the with the White Sox organization. Like overall, you know, he he got hurt and spent a lot of his time rehabbing, and then for you know, it's just like it was hard for us to really get a feel of what the Sox actually had in Dane Dunning and. The fact that he was able to get healthy, and of course, it, it played to his advantage because he got hurt a little bit earlier in the calendar than, say, like a, a Jimmy Lambert or Carlos Rodon. But for for Dunning to be his age and to have that longer rehab process to come out and then just, hey, I'm ready to go and pitch in the majors, and he's had this type of success to the point where you're like, hey, this is a consistent mainstay whether it's in the middle or back end of the rotation or if you need him to fill a spot in the top three you feel like he's capable and this is only what four starts into his major league career so I agree with you I think Dane Dunning is is definitely one of the most pleasant surprises of the Chicago White Sox in 2020 and also I want to throw this your way what about Nick Madrigal what have you seen so far about him on the field consistently he's starting to get a feel of major league pitching it seems because He's getting the barrel on baseballs. He's having good at-bats. We're seeing the contact, but you know, a couple days ago, a few days ago, he, he was able to get his first uh, extra base hit off of his back, and now he's, he's hitting the ball hard. You know, not, not as consistently as we'd like, but I feel like he's adjusting pretty well to the major league scene. What do you see out of Nick Madrigal here? Yeah, I've been um, pretty critical of, of Nick Madrigal uh, since he's been in the, in the White Sox system here, and I had a lot of questions about the viability of him as an everyday major league player, just because of the fact that he really is a slap hitting middle infielder at, at second base. You know, a lot of people obviously felt very strongly and very passionately about the fact that he is a guy that puts the bat on the ball with consistency and, and doesn't strike outs and hits for a high average in the minor leagues. The concern that I had with that going along was, is he going to be able to hit the ball hard enough with consistency to find holes at the major league level that he was finding down in Winston-Salem or down in Birmingham? Because let's face it, when you're doing that at the minor league level, on a given team, you're facing maybe two or three guys that are going to get to the major leagues. So the quality of the defense that you're seeing at that level isn't going to be as strong as what he's seeing here in Chicago for, for obvious reasons there, but he just has a tremendous knack for putting the bat on the ball and finding holes. And it's really a nice compliment to what this lineup has. They've got a lot of boom bust in this lineup. A lot of guys that can hit the tape measure home runs, but are also going to swing and miss and, and do it with regularity for stretches as we're seeing right now with Luis Robert. And, and the contrast between the two right there is pretty glaring. You know, Madrigal is a guy that shows a great deal of comfort hitting with two strikes. And I just think having him down there at that number nine spot, listen, he's he's making me eat a lot of words that I said about him over the last couple of years here. Um, there have been a couple of boneheaded defensive mistakes and, and a couple of miscues running the bases here. Um, it might just be 
trying to be overly aggressive here in your first taste of major league baseball. And, and that happens, you know, from, from time to time with players, but we're seeing the makings of, of a guy that can really add a different element and, and a different dimension to this team. That's really going to help make them more well-rounded as a whole, in my opinion. All right, Steve. So they, you know, they clinched the playoff spot today. Like you said, I would, I agree with you. I'd love to see them win the win the division on the Indians field because I hate those guys so much. But let let's get just a tad bit greedy. Who what's the best first round potential matchup for the White Sox? Who do you want? I think the best uh potential matchup for them realistically would be the Toronto Blue Jays. Um that's a starting rotation that just simply does not scare me and it really shouldn't scare anyone. And the fact of the matter is their best starting pitcher is Hunjin Ryu, who last time I checked still throws with his left hand. And as we have seen this year, the White Sox have this, uh, they, they just refuse to lose to left-handed pitching. So the idea of seeing Ryu in game one of a series, I think is going to get the Sox off on a good note. And so that's really who I would be looking for in that scenario there. Yeah, I think I probably agree with you there. The, uh, the, the good old Buffalo Blue Jays, right? And I, you know, I think I think the one thing that we know at this point is the White Sox should be hosting the the first series because they're, you know, even if mighty collapse here, they're probably still the four seed. You would think so they'll get three home games before they uh, go to the bubble. I wonder how much having three home games even really matters, though. I'm not I'm not really sure. Yeah, I don't know that it's going to matter as much as it would in a typical playoff scenario. Obviously, the one key benefit to that is having that last at bat in the bottom of the ninth if you need it. Other than that, I yeah, to your point, I don't know that the home field is going to be that big of an issue here in these first-round series. The last thing I have for you, something that you've talked about in the past and written about kind of extensively, you know, is, is baseball realignment. But also, you know, just knowing that they're probably going to add two more teams here at some point, you know, they, they added eight playoff teams this year in each league and every sport, once they start adding stuff, like it never goes away. Right. And there's always, and there's, there's also been whispers recently that, you know, this expanded playoff format is here to stay. I think there's issues with this current format, but I'm for expanded playoffs. What are your thoughts on it going forward? So I personally would not like to see expanded playoffs with more than six teams per league. And I think in that scenario, what I would do, and look, we're obviously we're going to see expansion. So we're going to go to 32 teams. We're going to have eight divisions of four. So you'd have your four division winners and your two wild cards. And I almost think a scenario similar to what the NFL does, where your two top seeds in each league get buys in that first round. And then your division, your two division winners will host the two wild cards. And I think in that scenario there, what has to happen is your division winners get all home games. If you are a wild card, you don't get the reward of having a home playoff game. So that's one of the aspects that I see it. And then from there, I think there needs to be a, a reseeding element to this, similar to what we see in the NFL and in the NHL. So if you have a scenario where a number six seed beats a number three seed, that that number one seed in that particular league should be getting the benefit of playing that week number six seed. So those are a couple of things that I personally think would help make even an expanded playoff format with 12 teams in it a little more equitable and really 
forcing teams that are in a position to win the division to go all out to not only try to win that division, but try to get one of those top two spots so that you get that buy and that you don't have to play that best of three game series there. That's really good stuff, Steve. And a lot of fun. We were having fun today talking about the Chicago White Sox playoff bound, the team that has, how do you describe the feeling that they've brought on over the last decade plus prior to this postseason appearance? I mean, it's just, there's been frustration. You're not interested at all. You're just done. You're sick of it. Then you're also optimistic and then you're let down because it ultimately always came down to, man, this team just isn't isn't it. But now we can finally say, yeah, let's go. This team is ready, and uh, it's a lot of fun to see. It's been so interesting the last couple of days, as you know, people have been talking a lot on Twitter, and just people you know that I run into, you know, whether it's at the gym or you know out at a grocery store or, or friends that I have, you know, through text. And it, the thing that I just keep telling people on a consistent basis is that. I have spent so much time and money over the last 12 years watching really bad baseball, going traveling all across the country and, and watching this team play, and it's been for nothing. And to finally have this moment here where this is a good baseball team, I don't think there's any doubt about that anymore. The only thing about this that sucks is that we can't be there in person to see it for obvious reasons, but we have waited just so long for this moment to get here. And it just feels so good to know that I'm going to go to sleep tonight, knowing that when I wake up tomorrow, this team's going to get to continue playing baseball again, and they're going to the playoffs. And it's just been such a long time coming and it's so exciting. Yes. Guaranteed to play postseason baseball. That's fantastic. How about this too? Uh, don't look now, but the Chicago Cubs, first place in the NL Central, throwing no hitters, walking off against one of the best left-handed pitchers in baseball, and Josh Hader. I mean, this team is on a run, too, so it wouldn't be totally out of the realm of possibility if uh, the two Chicago baseball teams come together. That would be uh, the icing on the cake of uh, 2020, I, I would say, at least. That would be really something. I'm not quite sure that the city would be able to handle it, just given... You know, the I feel like the level of animosity between the two fan bases has really ratcheted up um, since the Cubs won in 2016 after, you know, the Cleveland Indians blew a three to one series lead, which, you know, they're the Cleveland Indians. That's what they do. <laughs> um, I got to get that shot in there. Sure. Um, but, you know, these two teams, if they ever met in a World Series, I've always said for a long time, I feel like the city would burn itself to the ground just because um, I, I know I personally stopped going to the Crosstown games. Um, yeah, it that, gets bad. It, it, it really does. You know, um, the last time I went was, uh, 2010. I actually went to one at 35th and Shields and that's my only appearance in Wrigley field ever. I saw Mark Burley beat, beat the Cubs on a, on a Saturday afternoon, but just the level of idiocy that takes place between the two fan bases. I mean, they really just bring out the worst in each other. And I'm just very fearful that if they met with the grand prize on the line, I just think it would be ugliness to a level we have never seen before. Yeah, you, you guys have no idea how excited I am that the last three games of the season aren't going to mean anything. It's it's really tre- <laughs> it's really tremendous. So you you guys know how I feel about the series. So you know, have, I hope the I hope the White Sox start like Ross Detweiler against them or something. That, that, <laughs> that final that final weekend. 
That's so true, though, uh, about the the concerns over the fan bases, because, man, it just it's so chaotic. Um, But at the end of the day, it's like, man, you got two Chicago baseball teams in your city. Your baseball fans enjoy it. Sit back. You don't have to like the other team, but like relax. Take a step back here. Anyway, Steve, really good stuff. Thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast again. Uh, you could find him on Twitter at NWI underscore Steve. Do you have anything on tap for upcoming on the Ooh, On Tap Sports Network nice. for you? Well, How about it? Well, you know, given some of the uh, recent speculation about uh, the return of Aaron Bummer here, I may or may not have something in the works that could be dropping here tomorrow morning. So be on the lookout for that. Um, you know, and, and you brought up something er- earlier, and it's kind of got me thinking, now that the Sox are in the playoffs, am I going to have to retire the Southside Clown Show moniker? Yeah, right. I was going to ask you about yeah, that. I was going to ask you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I mean, it's it's kind of been a calling card for me here for the last four or five years, and now I'm really going to have to put on my thinking cap and, and try to figure this out. It's a staple though, right? I think it's a reflection of how far, you know, because at this point, those who know you recognize Southside Clown Show. I don't know. I think it could be symbolic too, as like, look how far we've come sort of thing, you know? You know, that's a, that's a very good point here. And that's something I'm really going to have to sit down and dig deep here over the next couple of days. Steve, great stuff, man. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Guys, thanks for having me. Always a blast. That's Steve Peridzinski of the ONTAP Sports Network. You can follow him again at NWI underscore Steve. I highly recommend it. He's one of the best out on the Twitter sphere. For James Fox, I'm not going to give you his Twitter because you probably already follow him. My name is Mike Rankin. You can follow me at Rankin906. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Future Sox and also check us out on anchor.fm forward slash Future Sox for our entire library of podcasts. Until next time, James, happy birthday, sir.